Hi everyone, welcome to STEPS audio channel. We are very excited to share our content from STEPS events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech, and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Enagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content. We're here to discuss something that is actually very tricky to navigate, the early stage of the startup, which is the product market fit. Essentially, validating that someone is willing to pay for whatever you're selling. And with that, I'll start maybe with an introduction, if you can, starting with you, yeah, Joanna, absolutely. telling the audience a bit about yourself, your startup. Sure. Hi, everyone. Good morning. We're so excited to be here. And um, just a little bit of an introduction about me. Uh, I'm, I'm, they call me a serial entrepreneur and Web3 investor. Um, basically, I've set up a number of entities across the UAE that went global. Uh, and most recently, I started Made For You Global with uh, my five other co-founders. One of them is right there, Anna. <laughs> and what we specialize in is actually we're building a decentralized networking app, which bridges Web 2 and Web 3 technology. The whole purpose of it is to support professionals, female professionals and business leaders to reach their potential through many of our development programs. Um, so we're really excited here. We've been incubated under Shiraz S3 uh, cohort, and we are ready to roll. Zohair. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Zohair, and for those of you who don't know me, uh, no surprises. I'm kidding. Um, I'm the co-founder and uh, CEO of a company called Jalebi. And no, we don't make sweet, swirly things, but we do give them away, so come to our booth later on. Uh, Jalebi is basically a B2B uh, inventory optimization platform to help restaurants increase marginal income and working capital by reducing waste and uh, managing their inventory better. Um, <clears throat> we launched the company, well, we started working on it about two years ago, and we'll talk a little more about that. We were first accepted into the Shera S3 uh, uh, Venture Studio, which kind of got us a running start. And then we were accepted into Techstars, which is a global accelerator out of the US. We participated in their program in Saudi. And uh, since then, we've just been trying to build and try and get customers. Uh, we're live in four markets, three markets right now. And uh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, happy to answer any questions. Hilal. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good morning, everyone. My name is Hilal Tariq Luta. I'm the co-CEO and co-founder of Loon Technologies. We're a B2B fintech infrastructure uh, company based in the DIFC and the Hub 71. And we focus on the issue of transaction data enrichment, and we serve banks and fintechs and the fintech ecosystem in the UAE and the GCC also. We have a lot to talk about, which might take hours to uh, discuss, but for today, what I want to focus on is this PMF, the Product Market Fit Trinity. So the customer, the market, and the solution coming together, which essentially, if you've cracked that, then that means that you're onto something. It's still the first step of a startup, but maybe looking at it and diving deeper into it with Zohair, starting with you. So the market is ever-changing. It's continuously iterating. And you know, stranger to pivoting. So <laughs> can you tell us more about the journey of Jalebi, um, where today it is the closest to the product market fit it's ever been? How was it? And what did you go through? And what can the audience learn from your experience in it? Um, so without boring you with details, we started building Jalebi right at the start of COVID. It was May 2020, and we hadn't really kind of thought of what we were going to do. We just knew we wanted to build a B2B product for F&B. That was just kind of the 
the drive that the founders and you know my other co-founders and I had. So we started by exploring spaces that were going to become important and relevant during COVID because you know everything was shutting down and naturally delivery was going to be the only way people would get food. And so we started looking at you know spaces of supporting the ecosystem there. Um, we went through about three or four different iterations. We started off doing something that a company like Deliverect or GrubTech or um, Otter, you might have heard of, that aggregate aggregators, and they make it easy for restaurants to basically take orders from uh, aggregators through a single channel rather than multiple tablets. That was futile, so we moved in behind the POS, started building a menu management system, which is where Shira came in and you know said, okay, this looks interesting. Let's kind of help you out and shape this. Um, that took us about maybe... I think another six or seven months into our journey, Techstars uh, accepted us based on that idea, but not really caring about the model because they thought that there was probably much more that we could do with that. Um, I asked them at the near the end of the program, I said, why did you actually accept us in the program? And they said, well, it definitely wasn't your product. <laughs> uh, they liked the founders. They liked the way that the founders complemented each other. We had three very complementary and different skill sets, one CTO, one chief product officer, and myself who has neither, neither of those skills. And uh, so when we arrived at the inventory as our kind of focus, we were it was in the program and we did this really crazy thing where we basically decided at the beginning of the program that we were going to throw away everything that we'd built at that moment and start building a new product entirely because what we'd been building up till then just got us as far as we needed to get, but it wasn't going to get us further than that. And when we shifted our focus, that was a third kind of, we don't really sort of call it a pivot, it's more of a shift in focus. It was a natural gravitation to the back of house of a restaurant. Um, and we realized that's where the opportunity is. But I think it was in that moment where when we started to kind of change our narrative and focus on that part of the business, restaurants started taking us seriously, investors started taking us seriously, and things just started to kind of move in a direction that was more favorable to be able to build a business that would be you know, worthy of bringing us this far. Um, eventually, we were able to raise money from some angel investors, uh, many of them in Saudi Arabia. I think we have like 18 or 19 investors, uh, most of which are Saudi angels, which is amazing. And a uh, few people in the UAE, some in North America as well. And uh, I think, I mean, if we were to say, like, have we found product market fit? Absolutely not. Um, product market fit, I think, and I might be controversial for some, but it's not a moment. It's not like a thing that happens and then suddenly you kind of move past it. Um, <clears throat> it's a series of goalposts that you have to set during the journey where you're trying to figure out what is the right combination of building something that people will value and pay you for and the multiplier will kind of keep accelerating so that you know the, the infinite nth number of multiples that you can apply to growth will just start to kind of self-perpetuate, meaning that if it's not a one-to-one -one ratio, it's not a one-to-ten ratio, those ratios keep changing as the effort you put in is less but the ability for more people to access what you're building is growing. So you know, your, let's say your margins are going from like, I don't know, 30% to 80%. And so you have this, you know, perfect trinity. But I think the cycles of that change are just perpetual and they're constant. So, but, you know. If we can build on <coughs> this set of assumptions or the validation component in this journey, so the series of goalposts that Zuhair uh, mentioned, with you, Jumana, you've managed to stand out from the competition in the market. Can you tell us more about how did you approach this assumption validation, this feature assessments or coming up with the ideas that you can then infuse into your product? Sure. So Made For You actually was, um, the idea was launched just during COVID where a lot of the times, you know, women had lost jobs and this was an international phenomenon. 
Um, I think we all experienced at some point where our businesses were hurt. Um, there was greater reliance on, for example, the dual job or the dual caps on for women between households and also working. So we started listening to a lot of the social problems and we realized that actually there is definitely a market there for Made For You and all of our programmatic interventions that we hope to launch. Um, so we started building the enterprise slowly, and I think what people fail to realize with a startup is that it takes extensive years, literally, to actually build and, and do a product market fit that actually is very much uh, uh, relevant because, you know, what we wanted to build two years ago is still relevant, but there are still other aspects that we've added on to elevate the experience of Made For You Global. So in the past two years, we've been building it. So as being part of the Shira, um, you know, a program, we've been able to create an MVP. Uh, we are now in the phase of actually testing it out. Uh, we just launched actually in November 2022. So it's a very uh, important, important and monumental moment for us because we were building the technology for over a year and a half. And that was really difficult because we had to get a white label basically of a platform to use to be able to test out our MVP. Uh, so far what we've been noticing is that there is definitely traction, there's definitely interest and by having this product we're really able to understand if you know a lot of the services are actually wanted by the community or how we can further refine the services. Now, moving a little bit further to that, you know, with the rise of Web3 technology and also blockchain, and I actually build a lot within Web3 and blockchain, I just felt that it was necessary for us to stand out because there are thousands and thousands of other enterprises out there that do focus on female empowerment, that do provide knowledge development programs, but nothing like ours. And so by combining elements of Web3, Web3 technology, I think that sets us apart extensively, and that is truly our competitive advantage. Um, I'm very particular when it comes about competition. I don't think of it as competition. On the contrary, I do believe that it's all about partnerships. And many of these existing female-centric platforms actually I, I envision a world where we could actually all collaborate because each one of them contributes to a certain service of which could elevate all of our enterprises. So to answer finally your question, competition is there. We do have a competitive advantage. We are very different than anyone else in the market. I have stood on 11 global platforms, on Web3 platforms where I showcased Made For You Global and everyone was in awe. And these are people who are strangers that know nothing about us, that couldn't care less if our product was amazing or not. But the fact that we are able to innovate and integrate services that are appealing to various audiences and the way in which we do it and our ability to pivot and actually move fast and innovate, I think is our, um, you know, what makes us very different. And also we have a team of six incredible women. And at first one comment when we first joined, you know, could that be your weakness or your strength? And it's actually our strength because each one of us has an expertise that nobody else has. So when you combine all of these efforts, we have a very solid business plan, a solid model that is able to grow and is scalable and is extremely innovative. So looking at you now, Hilal, your solution is primarily focusing on B2B business to business. You're working with banks, you're working with fintech startups. 
And that brings its own complexity as well, especially at the PMF stage where you need to keep tailoring your offering to meet those business needs. How did you go about it? And what was the challenge that you faced trying to tweak while finding your PMF at the same time? No, absolutely. I, uh, some of the learnings that we learned is the fact that, you know, finding your product market fit is an ongoing process that never ends. Uh, we started as a B2C proposition, trying to help individuals in the UAE uh, enhance or be able to save their money in a much better way. That was only when we realized that there is a deeper issue in the technology, there's a deeper issue in the financial data that we are processing. And that was the catalyst that where we decided that we can impact a lot uh, of more people if this solution was embedded within financial applications or mobile banking, for example. This is where we decided to pivot to B2B. And at that, at that stage, we realized that like, this learning, we, couldn't, we didn't get from research or copying another business model in a different country, or uh, you know, it wasn't there on the internet for you to learn. This is where through experience, through working, through getting it out, through speaking to our customers, we realized that there is something deeper, there is a bigger issue. So that's when we decided to pivot to the B2B business model. And only then we started facing the challenges in finding, uh, you know, even more challenges in dealing with di this different kind of consumer persona. So when you're working in the B2B space, you're in a completely different uh, space. Your customers are different. Banks are very different entities than fintechs. Fintechs are very different from retailers. They're very different from me and you. And there's a lot of learning to be made there from the product perspective, from understanding who you're speaking to, from understanding how, what stakeholders to approach. And I can, you know, one thing I can say for sure, it's been uh, a very, very difficult to start, uh, especially in the uh, early, uh, days, especially on the B2B, and there is very high barriers to entry, especially as an early stage startup. You know, you, you haven't built your, uh, you call it the, you know, brand recognition yet in the market, especially when it comes to banks that are used to dealing with international companies, for example. So here the emphasis doubles on focusing on your product market fit and understanding what's the motivation with the clients you're speaking to. Uh, this specific individual within the company that you speak to, the bank, what is it that motivates them and how do you tailor your product to succeed in that? So that's some of the learnings that we had in the B2B uh, process so far. Now I'd like to explore a, a, another component of the product market fit journey, which is the product itself. In the beginning, you can maybe come up with a prototype, an MVP, a minimum viable product that you can test out, get some quick feedback on it, but eventually you'll need to then develop a product that is a bit more stable um, and still continuing to optimize it, to iterate it, to come up with different variations of it. I'd like to understand from each one of you, and this time I'm not going to call on you individually, you can pick your turn to answer it, but how did you go about developing the product, especially in the region? You've all built products here in the UE and now expanding to new markets. Did you go about did you hire local like an in-house team did you outsource it what were like the biggest challenges that you faced with developing your early stage product uh, while you're still in this product market fit testing okay. so, um, again this is a very important question i get a lot of the 
in my discussions with new you know founders Hilal, how did you crack this issue in the start do we outsource the tech do we hire people i don't have any tech background i don't have a cto where do i find the cto you know and uh, especially if you don't have a tech background and you don't have that network of you know ctos or in this field then this is a very very important and big question from our experience we started by outsourcing and then that's when we learned a lot about outsourcing the pros and cons. And then we realized that hiring in-house is going to cost us the same and we'll have, you know, we'll have much more control, much more uh, you know, effective results. And that's when we decided to go into that level. This is a very you know, quick summary from when we started. But, uh, uh, yeah. Well, our journey was pretty wild, actually. <laughs> Um, so none of us come from a proper tech background, and so we felt it was necessary for us to work with professionals in the field that can actually help us develop an MVP that we could test out that's cost-effective, we can play around with it, and then based on that, we're able to showcase to our investors that, hey, it's working, shows, tr shows traction, there's interest on our products and services, and hence, now... Please give us the funds so that we can definitely build and move forward and elevate and innovate. Um, so we did, um, the whole process was about a year and a half in terms of developing the actual product. Uh, we worked with two incredible companies based in the US. Uh, one of them is Cary. Um, but I would have to say one of the limitations of doing something like that is that we bought a white label uh, system. Literally, the product was white labeled, which means that it was not customized to our clients' requirements and needs and didn't really address a lot of, you know, the services that we had hoped to integrate at this point. And because of that, we, do, we did face limitations, but nonetheless, taking into account that this is the most viable solution right now for us to go ahead with this, to help, it, to help us understand the current terrain and what works and what, what doesn't work, I think it was the most solid solution for us. Um, and it's right now gearing, it up, gearing us up for our first, uh, you know, capital raise, which is coming up very soon. So, um, so it's been really exciting, but it has had its frustrations because we are not able to cater 100% or let's say with the product, our product does not 100% fit within the market needs because of the current solution that we have. But that does not mean that we are not finding alternative ways to deliver on our products and services to the clientele. Um, so this is my third time trying to build a product company. Well, actually second product company, third time building a company of my own. I've built, um, other companies with, as an entrepreneur and my first venture ever, uh, started in 2004, uh, I was in parallel to a career. So it wasn't a serious thing at the time, unfortunately, but, um, the first path for me was to go and find help because I didn't know how to build. Obviously this is very early days, you know. We're talking about .NET. We didn't have any of the WordPresses that you have now. Um, over the years, I think one thing that I realized was that there's there's a there's an advantage and disadvantage to working with other people. I think it depends on what your needs are. So, for example, if you have very limited cash, uh, it's hard to hire somebody externally, but it's also hard to hire full time in house. So you find help from someone who can come on board and maybe work with you as a CTO, you know, on an equity basis. Um, but that's hard to find, as you said. They're probably more elusive than unicorn uh, 
companies. Um, surprisingly, you think that there'd be more CTOs. If there are any CTOs out here, by the way, we can build a marketplace and give you great jobs. Um, we actually need one too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, to kind of bring it back with Jalebi, we knew that what we were building was novel. Um, novel in the sense that it would have to work in a way that was diametrically opposed to the way that restaurant technology has operated today. And the reason we knew that was not because we'd looked at all the technology and said, okay, these are the gaps that they're not filling. But we went and spent about a year and a half just asking a ton of questions. I mean, this is something that we celebrate is we did so much customer discovery that we had customer discovery coming out of our ears. And eventually what we realized was, and one, one of our uh, first angels said to us was that what you guys are actually trying to do is build a movement, right? Like it's, you're going to the customer and asking them critical thinking, um, you know, through critical thinking, what are the needs that they have? But they don't necessarily have the answers themselves. They just know what the problems are, what the symptoms of those problems are, and how can you use your own kind of consultative mindset to be able to plug those. And through that process, what we realized was that the first approach, the second approach, and eventually the third approach would kind of lead us to where we would end up being as a company, as a product company. And so short story, short answer is we built, we decided to go in-house entirely. Uh, we invested very heavily in technology resources. We had a partner company that was working with us to give us resources, but they're dedicated to us. They work with us full time. They're on our payroll. It was just faster to do that than to go and recruit people. Although I'm a big fan of recruiting because I believe in building culture and building a kind of a sense of belonging because if people feel like they are part of what you're doing beyond just the work and the paycheck, you can go through very difficult and sort of turbulent periods and they won't flinch. In fact, they'll probably double down on their trust for what you're trying to do because they believe so much in what you're doing and they're not just you know, an asset on a cost center. And so I think there's a lot of dynamics that we looked at. It wasn't just about having the skill set, but more about how far are we willing to go with this and what do we need to do? And I think by just having that faith in ourselves, we were able to rally support from some people who came on as early customers. We don't have a lot of customers, by the way. We have paying customers. Um, we're not looking at fast growth at any cost. It's something that I've fundamentally been against before COVID, before all the hype. And I think that we're in a very interesting time now where we have to be sensible about how we spend money. So building in-house, I think, was a really good way for, because in the end, whether you're in it for the short term or the long term, you're going to end up spending whatever money you're going to spend. You need to commit to something and then just stick with it. And, you know, I think the rest of it, the universe has a way of conspiring to help you. Um, I have a lot of faith in invisible forces. So, <laughs> so I told you it needs hours to... Uh and hard work. Extra. He's saying I talk a lot, by the way. <laughs> I do, but that's besides the point. No, but continuing on this point, and we were catching up in the, the before coming on stage, all three of you are today raising rounds of funding. But I'd like to go back and take a step previous to that. So again, in the early stage of the startup, each one of you's product, financing it is not easy. Um, at that level where you still have a prototype, an MVP, you're still testing it, iterating it, pivoting it. No one is going to give you that money in the beginning, so, but you still have costs. You have the tech to outsource, you have the team to hire. As a founder, co-founders, maybe if you're lucky and have a team, you're not taking in money yourselves, but you need to pay people, you need to be in these events, you need to give out jalebis and your tote bags <laughs> here. So on that, just understanding in the beginning, how did you navigate this, this struggle of, of funding and, and finding the capital? So we've been actually, we're very frugal. <laughs> 
Um, so, and this isn't the first business that we set up. We've set up many businesses, a lot of my co-founders as well. So for us, we approached Shira as part of the cohort program. So we received initial pre-seed funding, which was amazing. This funding, we were able to set up our actual MVP um, and our product to be able to test it. So we've kept costs very minimal. Uh, we have no other staff other than the co-founders who are hands-on. Um, and now we are just about ready to start with a capital raise. And because we've kept it consistent and growth has been, um, you know, kind of in a very sustainable way, uh, we are now ready for the next level and tech expansion for sure because we definitely need to elevate the experience that we have build a new system, integrate the Web3 components that we want from NFTs to DAOs to a metaverse university that we intend on having. So definitely we're moving forward and moving along the lines of tech and innovation. And that requires a capital raise right now, which we're ready for it. And we're going to start fundraising like crazy. Everyone's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you find money? Tell us. What are the tricks here? So in the early days, so there's three ways you can start up your business. Uh, and everyone has different kinds of contexts or uh, circumstances. Uh, first of all, you know, in my experience, we spent all our savings, my co-founder and I. And, you know, we reached this you know, final end of uh, what we had. And then, alhamdulillah, God opened the doors for us. Uh, so first way is, you know, allocate some kind of your, you know, save some kind of money and that to start to just prove either traction or you know traction you need to prove traction that's the thing if your savings can get you there and then you can prove that there's a viable business model then you're ready to go to investors and convince them that there is something here then you have proven that there is something here and then stage number two would be to go to the easiest investors next to you which is your friends family angels people that put their trust in you as an individual other than the business itself. They're taking a risk. You have to be up to that risk. And not everyone really has that kind of, uh, that available. One of my uh, fellow friends and startup founders has the same issue. Like, you know, go, do it this way. It's like, clearly, you know, I can't find anyone in my close sector. And the third approach, which only uh, a few of us uh, have, the kind of experience to do this. We didn't at the start, but a lot of successful founders that you see today, they already have the networks, they have the experience in either venture capital or within their respective uh, you know, fields. Uh, or for example, they've already started businesses in the past and they have that network effect that allows them to raise that funding. So these are three ways and each one of us is in a different kind of uh, stage. Now, this brings me on to the point of why the ecosystem uh, needs to grow uh, in terms of this. We're way ahead from where we were a few years ago, but there's still a huge room for improvement, especially at the very early stages in terms of funds, in terms of programs to support. There's a lot of uh, programs, accelerated programs, incubators for pre-seed or idea stage. But the question mark or the gap is that very early stage funding to help you build that MVP. We still, there is still a gap there here in the UAE and I would say in the wider region. A few comments or thoughts from my side. Um, so 
I had a, so I, I had a little bit of context. I have a digital agency that I started while I was a career employee in uh, 2015. So I used to work with a corporate. That was my last job. And I'd kind of promised that was the last time I was going to take a paycheck from someone else. Um, I had no idea what I was doing after that, but I knew that that was it. So I think one was kind of setting your mind to setting a limit. So there's no plan B. I have to kind of take tangent. The second was I need to create revenue for myself somehow, and it has to be something that I can sustain with because Dubai is expensive. Um, you can cut back as much as you want. Uh, this is a great market to build in, but it's also a very complicated market to operate in. And so you have to be sensible about the choices that you make if you're gonna build from here. Um, while there's a lot of ecosystems and a lot of support, we've benefited from great numbers of them, including Shara. Um, not everybody has that luxury, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. So. Um, the agency was interestingly a successful company. We broke even in about 18 months, never took external capital, uh, invested about $10,000 of our own savings and it's a service company. So, you know, for the most part it worked until COVID and then we got slapped around a lot. We survived. It's still running eight years. I'm not involved in it very much, but it gave us out of that, that breathing room or me, that breathing room, um, so that I could buffer and figure out what I needed to do next with Jalebi. We, um, we coasted for a while. For about a year, we just tried to scrape together whatever approach we could to try and build. So we didn't actually start building a product until about a year and a half. And at that, it was after Shara that we got in. That was in June, I think, of 2021. So we'd started almost a year later. That's when we actually started building a product. Before then, we were just asking a ton of questions, meeting people, and trying to figure out what the approach would be. So my two co-founders still had jobs. Um, I was working in the agency, so you know, I was kind of putting food on the table. But um, they reached a point where, when when we got into TechStars, you know, we got some money from them, and that was going to take us only so far. But I think we knew very quickly that we'd have to hire people, we'd have to build a company, set up a holding company. These are costs that add up very quickly. I mean, if I could show you, and we manage our finances meticulously, um, we realized that we were going to need external capital, but we also have to try and make it stretch as much as possible because the dollars get shrink very quickly. So I think it was just circumstances, really. I mean, we just made sensible decisions, tried to make practical choices. How would you run your house? And just kind of expand from there and try and keep it really lean and simple uh, until we didn't have to. There's a lot to unbox. And maybe I'm looking at the time at this Yeah, I know. Seconds. It's like I, threatening. <laughs> I was told to cut the audio if we go over it. But yeah, if you can out. quickly go over like reflections, anything that you do differently, if you're doing it again, now to the audience, anything that they need to avoid in this PMF journey i think everyone is going to have their own journey everyone is going to have a very specific experience tailored to them based on their circumstances just learn how to embrace it and the one word that i would say is resilience uh, things are not gonna pan out the way you thought about it when you first started you just have to be at that moment you just have to stop pause and think about how to make it work instead of just stopping and going back into the safe zone that's, I think, the one piece of advice I have. I've got to actually do your own research all the time, uh, be it when you build your company, be it when you want to go uh, and raise capital, understand your investor, understand what they want. Um, and then also, I really believe that, yes, resilience is very much key, but also 
pivot as much as you can because with current circumstances and the current trends, if you want to be relevant, you have to, you, you have to be flexible enough to actually pivot and take that risk because you don't want to be obsolete at the end of the day. Um, and especially in the tech world right now, it's moving at a pace like crazy with, you know, AI and chat GT. There's just so much going on that you really need to be in tune with the trends and be able to pivot to uh, elevate the experience that you're you're providing. Um, just stay in the game long enough to survive. The business will only work as long as you're alive to kind of keep it running. It's That's really it. Um, like a cockroach, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to give you a graphic. But uh, I think the reality is that it's hard to build a company and it takes a lot of patience and you'll make a lot of mistakes. You just have to forgive yourself because... You didn't get here by accident. Wherever you are, you're meant to be. You just need to stay in it long enough to see it succeed. You'll figure it out. So good luck. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Anrami, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch.